It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. It is so good to be back with you this week. I so appreciate your patience as we have labored to ensure this broadcast gets out to you. We've been doing so remotely uh, since the studio is under great precautionary measures right now as they have been trying to uh, quarantine and and prevent any spread of COVID-19. And so they've been absolutely uh, working with us to try to put together this broadcast of Engage in Truth remotely as they upload it and then distribute it. So I appreciate your patience, even as the quality of the program, as you might hear right now through this broadcast, may not be what you're used to. So I appreciate, again, your patience. Uh, This has been a wonderful time, though, as we've been in God's Word together. We just continue to stay in God's Word. That's where we should be, even in the midst of uncertainty and difficult times as we've all faced together here. And so we've been in God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Let's pick up this week in verse 23 and hopefully cover all the way to chapter 11 verse 1 as we've been discussing doing all to the glory of God. You see, Paul discusses how we should interact with others over the issues of freedom. He's been doing this since 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that we've been covering of this issue of our license, our freedom in Christ Jesus as we came out from under the yoke of the 613 ordinances of the Torah law. So we have to then be willing to relinquish our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. So this will make a lot more sense when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when we discuss foregoing our rights for the sake of others because it's an, an expression of love. It's a true agape love demonstrated when we have the right to do something and we forego it for their well-being. Christ did that on the cross. And although he had the power to call down 12 legions of angels to come to his defense, according to Matthew 26, 53, he chose to go to the cross and then took on the form of a bondservant, according to Philippians 2, 1-9, to be made lower than the angels so that he could destroy the one who had power of death and to release us from the bondage that we were previously under in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. So God gives us freedom in order to refine us so that ultimately we'll be more like Christ as we exhibit sacrificial love for others. So Paul shares an important principle here, that edification is more important than personal gratification. You see, to edify means to improve as one who is under a tutor or an instructor. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. We pick up here today. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So as Christians, we've been given many freedoms when we contrast our position with those who were under the 613 ordinances of the Torah laws. But our behavior must be tempered with concern for others in the body of Christ. So if our freedom is going to be expressed then through this Christian maturity, then we'll use spiritual discernment when exercising those freedoms out of concern for the spiritual well-being of others. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. 
So that word edify can also mean to build up or strengthen. It's a word from the vocabulary of that was often used for the construction of buildings. So Paul uses it in his letters to describe the strengthening of Christian character in ourselves and in other people. So when we're faced with a decision about a particular practice, first we have to ask ourselves if we have the right to do it. And I would say if it's not forbidden by Scripture, then the right may exist. But the next question has to be whether it's profitable and edifying to the body of Christ. So will that activity build people up both ourselves and others, and if the answer is yes, then we we have the right to enjoy that freedom and to engage in it. I mean, really, this the scripture is our standard by which we hold all of these decisions accountable to. And we go to verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So our thoughts should always seek what is in the best interest of others above our own aspirations. We should desire to sacrifice for others. Now, now, granted, there are some extremes out there. There's at least two that even come to mind here when it comes to this issue of freedom. Some say, I don't care one iota what anyone says about what I do. I'll do what I please. I operate under the principle of grace, and I'm free to do as I please. Well, that attitude simply just approaches this line of spiritual anarchy. And then you have the others who live their life like they're in a spiritual straitjacket. Uh, they're afraid to sneeze without a sense of guilt. They, they always seem to be uh, you know, trying to find you know, the law that says that something can't be done. I mean, there has to be a delicate balance here. If you're going to err, though, I would say let's err in putting others first. Now, uh, one example comes to mind here. I love this story. Uh, There's a, a flight from Atlanta to Chicago back in July of 2004. Hard to believe it was 16 years ago. Uh, but nine U.S. soldiers, they were coming home from Iraq on a two-week leave, and they were among many passengers on the plane. And so before one of the soldiers boarded, a passenger traded his first-class ticket for the soldier's coach ticket. Now, as the plane was boarding, other passengers asked to trade in their first-class seats for their coach seats that the soldiers had been given. And, and one of the flight attendants then said on this American Airlines flight, she said, it was a, a privilege to be flying with those two groups of unselfish people, uh, those who would put their lives on the line to protect their fellow citizens' freedom, and those who were not ashamed to say thank you. I mean, after all, true freedom is putting God and others first. Let's continue on, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 26. He says, eat whatever is sold in the, the meat market. Again, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Now, this is he's talking about the conscience here. Paul majors on our freedom in Christ. He says it doesn't matter what we eat, including food that had been sacrificed to idols. That was a point that we covered a great deal in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, because neither the taking of it nor the abstaining from it will have any effect on our relationship with God. All food is a gift from God. So keep in mind here that the Jewish customs would have prevented anyone from eating unlawful food that was outlined in the Leviticus chapter 11. So what Christ did in Matthew 15:11 was unbelievable. Here's what he says. He says, Now, not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. 
That, that was This was something that as Christ spoke these words, Paul would highlight this throughout Romans chapters 6 to 8. And then he stressed it really in Romans 7 verse 6 when he wrote, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So let's just take a, a walk down history lane for just a moment here to understand this, of, of how pivotal this is, of this freedom that was now given to us when we were restricted greatly under the ordinances of the Torah law from Leviticus chapter 11. Now we've been given freedom to consume foods that previously weren't allowed to be eaten with a specific mission in mind, okay? So we have to understand this, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. This wasn't simply to give us a freedom so that we can indulge the flesh, but rather a freedom given to us so that we wouldn't be restricted from the mission that was forthcoming. So again, let's talk, take a walk down memory lane here looking at history. Uh, God had a plan, as we know from the very beginning, Isaiah 46 verse 10. I love that scripture. It talks about God seeing the end from the beginning. So the first compilation of the 39 books of the Old Testament would be written in Greek, not Hebrew. There were several scrolls, all of these scrolls that were in Hebrew, but they weren't compiled into one codex, if you will, or one complete scroll, one complete writing, not in Hebrew, but rather in Greek, and that didn't come about until around 285 B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt, of all places. It was called the Septuagint. And it was this compilation ordered by the Egyptian king Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. Now, Philadelphus, I think it's very interesting that uh, it was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the first Bibles were printed in the United States. And here was Philadelphus, um, the Egyptian king Ptolemy II, who would order this compilation of Scripture Boy, history has a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? But at that time, the, the king had ordered the translation, and according to the letter, King Ptolemy wanted copies of all known books in his library. He wanted all the knowledge of the world compiled into his library there at Alexandria, Egypt, including the Hebrew scriptures. So he had 72 scholarly Jews brought in from Jerusalem to Alexandria, Egypt, to translate all the Old Testament scrolls into Greek. And that was the first compilation of the 39 books of the Bible at that time. Now, the 27 books of the New Testament would be added around 140 AD, also in Greek. So when the Synod of Hippo met in 393 AD and the Synod of Carthage in 397 AD, they were simply identifying the books of the New Testament that were already known and confirmed by the church as some 27,000 manuscripts had already been circulating by that point through Asia, Europe, and Africa. So I find it interesting that the Old Testament texts were first compiled just before Christ would come in the flesh and the whole Bible compiled thereafter. The Old Testament preserved the people while the New Testament redeemed the people. So all of the Old Testament pointed to Christ and all of the New Testament was a result of Christ. Oh, I love that. That's why, that's why even time is delineated as before Christ and, and even after Christ. So uh, Romans 11 teaches that the compilation was deliberately translated and written in Greek 
so that the whole world would hear the good news. Now, Greek was the global language at that time, especially in commerce like English is today. And God was preparing for the message to go to the Gentiles specifically. We see that in Matthew chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10, even Romans 11 and Amos 9. So when Peter was in the home of Simon the Tanner, and about to give the gospel message to Cornelius, it was a, a Roman centurion in Acts chapter 10, the Lord had to help Peter understand that what was once unclean is now clean, even using forbidden food as an illustration in Acts 10, 9 to 15. So from a, a practical standpoint, uh, standpoint here, I mean, think about this, from a practical standpoint, think about what the missionaries would go through even today. Not just then, but even now, think about it from a missionary perspective. If they go into a new land, they need to be able to respect the homes of those whom they're ministering to. If they sat down to eat a meal and then refused to eat what was presented, they would offend that culture and those who needed to hear the gospel message. Then there would be a barrier created and the missionary couldn't deliver the message. So God was enabling his servants to serve without the bondage of food regulations that would prevent the greater work from being done. And this freedom then requires great responsibility. So the apostles had forbidden the partaking of things offered to idols in Acts chapter 15, 20 to 29. But a fuller revelation given to Paul gave further understanding, delineating the difference of purchasing and consuming meat used in pagan practices rather than engaging in the practice itself. We see that Israel suffered for that. When they, when they were given an opportunity to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, it wasn't just the consuming of the meat, but the whole practice itself where suddenly they gave into idolatry. It wasn't just the meat, it was the whole practice of idolatry that consumed them. So we go on to verse 27 here of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. Now this is one of many, uh, well, I think it's probably one of many of the favorite verses of mothers all over the world, right? I mean, if I put it down before you, you're going to eat it. <laughs> if only children and husbands would abide by this principle. I mean, seriously, in context, though, uh, Paul informs the Corinthians that they should not make an issue of the origin of the meat or food they are eating. They should eat all of it as respect, out of respect for those who have prepared it because of the mission that is before them, not to cause an offense or a stumbling block, but to give the message of hope. So eating a piece of meat that was offered to an idol would not defile the Christian. What defiles the Christian is participating in heathen worship. So there are non-believers who invite us into their homes, and we have complete freedom then to eat whatever they put before us. So Paul's solution to a potential violation of your conscience is don't ask to the extent that we're willing to do what is told before us to do. We need to be willing to put ourselves out there for the mission that's before us. It wasn't to indulge the flesh. It was a mission-mindedness. So we're reflecting the life of Jesus who ate with tax collectors and sinners, according to Matthew 9, 10 to 11. 
But if we're legalistic, upright, self-righteous, self-protective Christians, the holier-than-thou types, our non-Christian acquaintances won't want anything to do with us anyway. So, so we're not even going to get invited into their homes. But if we live a life of freedom in Christ that is mature and responsible, that will attract them to Jesus. Now, we have to give some side notes here. The word used for invites, kaleo, is found in papyri from Egypt relating to both secular and religious meals. So Paul was using a very common word related to an invitation to a meal that was common then and even today. Let's look at verses 28 to 30. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. But for but for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness your conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other, for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I have given thanks? Now, what Paul's doing here in verses 28 to 29 is raising a hypothetical situation in which you've been invited to a non-Christian friend's home, and, and one of your Christian friends is there as well, who, who may have a weaker conscience, and they're offended possibly even confused by the freedom with your with which you're indulging in. So, you know, he, where he might just simply, he or she may simply say, don't you know that this is food that's been sacrificed to an idol? Are you sure you should be eating this? Okay, so now you've got two situations here. One is you're invited into the home of someone else who may not be a believer. You have a a weaker conscience individual with you, maybe a young Christian who's now offended possibly by the fact that you may eat of that food, drink of that drink, um, and they think that you're somehow breaking God's heart in so doing. So what Paul is suggesting here is that we might just decide to refrain from eating the meat so as to not risk leading that younger brother or sister uh, into some kind of sin or, or confusing their conscience, okay? So again, all of this requires discernment, doesn't it? I mean, and you may think this this is not something I deal with. Oh, just hang on. Let me give you some examples here. I, I, I've actually been in these situations before. So uh, Paul again defends his position here in verse 29 to partake of any kind of food, especially food that he knows is a good gift from God and to receive it with gratitude he also says he refuses to be fearful about what other people might think with his actions since they align with the whole word of God. So if we walk obediently, then there should be no concern. However, he's telling us to be mindful of those who are present in our situations, those who may even be observing from afar. We don't want to create a stumbling block to them. Let me give you some examples here. Uh, when I would go to a meal with uh, Dr. James Dobson, he's a man I greatly respect and had the privilege of working with for a, a two decades, um, he would never have a, a glass of wine. He would never have a glass of wine. It, it, it wasn't because he didn't like the wine, uh, not that I'm aware of anyway, but because he knew the enemy was always looking for ways to ruin the reputation of those who were taking a stand for Christ in this culture. So he always chose to abstain from a freedom he had for the greater cause of Christ. Now I had a meal with another prominent Christian leader who chose to have a glass of wine. 
He knew the Bible back and forth. He felt comfortable with me enough to even have a glass of wine. However, because I knew the freedom we had in Christ and I knew his character and his obedient walk before the Lord, I didn't even question his decision to utilize that freedom. I knew he wasn't a drunkard. I knew it because he was an individual of great integrity. And this gave him the license to enjoy his freedom. Neither men were wrong in the examples I just shared. However, I would suggest that the second man was taking a little more risk in this day and age to enjoy that particular freedom. But maybe that's just my humble perspective on that matter. Had he been enjoying the same meal with an unbeliever or someone who had just broken the yoke of alcohol addiction, then I know he would have abstained from that. So again, all of this requires discernment and maturity in faith. Now, pause is now ready to summarize this entire three-chapter discussion from chapters 8 to 10. And, and now he moves using the word then, uh, and it's intended now to draw the, our mind and our focus here to this conclusion on our freedom, doing all to the glory of the Lord. So as a general principle here, that's what he wants us to highlight of all of this, three chapters they were to do everything to the glory of God. That's it. That's what, what's what matters here. To do something for the glory of God means to reflect God's glory in every way that we live. That's what we're to do with the responsibility of the freedom that he has given to us. In verses 31 to 32, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. This mindset is further highlighted as Paul will write in Colossians 3, 17 to 24, even what we read in Matthew 5, verse 16. So the aim we ought to have in using our liberty carefully and selflessly is to glorify God, bottom line. We're to use our eating and drinking to bring glory to him, not to cause any conflict to honor a demon, or to undermine the faith of a weaker brother or sister, according to Romans 14, 21. So his concern was having an, 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 to forego any offense, how to navigate this correctly, how to not only use his freedoms carefully, but to ensure that the freedom he was given was being used to honor God back with it. So that's the point he's going to stress in Romans 12, 18, and in Hebrews 12, 14, to strive to be at peace with all men so that ultimately people will see the Lord. That's what matters. Paul spoke earlier in the letter about the fact that the gospel in and out of it, in and of itself is, is an offense to people. I mean, the gospel message will be an offense to some people, but he didn't want his own life to bring offense to the gospel in the eyes of anybody, Christian or non, that somehow his decisions would be a stumbling block to them. So Paul always looked in both of those directions, looking out for the well-being of those around him that his life always modeled the heart of Jesus Christ. And you go to 1 Corinthians 9, 21 to 23 on that. So in the little amount of time that we have left here, he says that his own life is a pattern of freedom in Christ Jesus, and he invites others to imitate him. Here's what he says, verses 33, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. He says, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 
So again, here we just uh, went into chapter 11, verse 1. We just, it's all the same theme here. I just want you to understand that. Uh, you know, sometimes we just want to go chapter by chapter here, but we got to remember that chapter and verse wasn't added until 1551 AD, uh, about 1500 years after Paul wrote this. So again, this is all part of that that theme that he is wrapping up from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So Paul doesn't mean that he was a man pleaser. We see that in Galatians 1.10. His concern was that his life would be attractive so that they would be drawn to Jesus Christ whom he represented. Right, So according to Romans 15.1-3 in this proper context here, saved in this context means that this even includes Christians and not just unbelievers. But, but those who may be stumbling as they're maturing in their faith, he wants all to be advancing spiritually, right? Unbeliever and believer alike, that they would not only know Christ, but grow in an understanding of Christ, being transformed by the washing and renewing of their mind. And so for Paul, as an apostle of Christ, it wasn't just a matter of preaching and teaching. It was a matter of living out the truth that he taught. Oh, we could all learn from that. And in many of those cities Paul went to, he would be the first and only Christian they would see. So watching him live his life was very important for them to understand the reality, the application of the gospel message. So you may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Therefore, we have to take our mission very seriously that we are truly living as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Again, there's so much on this. I know I have to go quickly for you here on the broadcast, but if you would like the sermon notes, if you want to hear more about this, if you want to go deeper in our study of 1 Corinthians and get the notes for yourself, read it, understand it, apply it, maybe even lead a small group of your own, uh, that's what we would certainly encourage you to do. Check us out. Come learn more about our ministry at calvaryfountain.com. We'd be happy to assist you in any way we can. Our services right now have been online at 10 a.m. Uh, we are opening May 3rd in a in a smaller capacity uh, for the very first time in, in seven weeks. So we're very excited by that. But again, you can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 10 a.m. We do broadcast live. Uh, we'd love to just engage with you, go deeper in God's word together. God bless you, my friends. Have a wonderful day. <music>